Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, December the 1st. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving with family and friends. Our panel had the week off last week, so this is our first time to get together and there is a lot to talk about this week. So leading off our panel is Eric Sonderman, columnist with Colorado Politics and the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes. Attorney Penfield Tate, who has served in both the State House and the State Senate here in Colorado. Chris Rourke, managing editor of the Denver Business Journal and Alton Dillard, a communications and community relations consultant with the Dillard Group and former elections spokesperson for the city and county of Denver. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, the Global Conference for Israel is taking place through this weekend in downtown Denver. More than 2,000 people are signed up to attend this conference, which is organized by the Jewish National Fund. This event sparked a lot of reaction and protests even before it got underway in this difficult and divisive time of war between Israel and Hamas, Eric. Oh, so much to unpack here, Kyle. Uh, obviously, Palestinians and those who oppose this conference and those who oppose Israeli uh, policy have their free speech rights, but the free speech rights don't necessarily include the right to disrupt. And that is what took place at the city council meeting a few nights back where they basically were able to terminate that city council meeting. The president of council after uh, 90 minutes or a couple hours just called it off because there was a no end in sight. Uh, similarly, Elizabeth Epps, state representative, firebrand state representative from central Denver, has her free speech rights, but that does not include the right to disrupt as she tried to do with a 30-minute harangue from the House gallery, the, the gallery of the chambers. Um, you know, we all come down on the Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world when they heckled the President of the United States during a State of the Union speech. How is what Elizabeth Epps was doing of a different magnitude or different order than what crackpots like Boebert and Taylor Green and others have done in heckling the President? Uh, if you're going to call one out, you should call the other out. Both are despicable. I've made myself clear on the whole Hamas uh, versus uh, Israel conflict before. Palestinians, there's no doubt, have gotten a raw deal. But the Hamas cause is not the cause that Palestinians necessarily should be rallying around. And let's all endorse a two-state solution, but that endorsement needs to start with Palestinians accepting Israel's right to exist and endorsing that two-state solution. All right, Penn. You know, I, I agree with much of what Eric said. I, I think we're fortunate that, at least at this point, we've got a limited ceasefire um, in the Middle East and hostages being released. So the tension is dampening a little bit, which is, which is favorable. Um, in, in terms of the conference here in Denver, I think it's appropriate. I think it's fair for people to march, to demonstrate, to protest. Um, that's sort of what this country is founded on. Uh, but the problem you get is when you start disrupting the operation of government, whether it be in city council chambers or in the legislative chambers, that becomes a problem. And the other thing that happens is not only is it inappropriate, I think often what some of the protesters don't realize is it's counterproductive. Because what happens is even people who may be sympathetic to your cause are in a position, especially if they're in the elected body, where they're thinking, oh man, now you came and embarrassed me because you didn't need to behave like this. If you wanted to wave signs or stand up and let your presence be known, fine. But disrupting the conducting of business is not the way to get people to respond to you positively. Mm -hmm. 
Chris. Yeah, I was going to uh, agree, especially in the case of Elizabeth Epps. You know, there are issues in this country that we need to be worried about. For example, the time that she uh, took over and made her speech, her, her pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas speech, it was during the debate of a bill that is going to further child nutrition. And those are the issues that the legislature was focused on at the time that she took everything off course, and it was in violation of a House rule. My concern is that the caucus has done nothing to discipline this member in any form or fashion, and that is very concerning. There are lawmakers that say it is very unfair with how um, uh, people are disciplined within the chamber for causing disruptions, that one side of the aisle gets it far more than the other. I think it's time for the Democratic caucus to show some strength here, some discipline. You know, and again, the message gets lost, just as, as Penfield said. The more disruptive you are, the more you turn people off. So if people want to be heard, they should do it within the confines of what is appropriate, what is good decorum, and no, that's not a dirty word, and what is really appropriate at the time. Alton? Hmm. Interesting perspectives, because you used uh, democratic and strength in the same sentence. And I still hold out that they are finally starting to show some flex with their majority down there at the state house. And I see Penn has his a copy of his constitution with him. And so on this whole Israeli Hamas thing, I like to say, well, how's that First Amendment treating everyone now? See, First Amendment always seems to apply, except when it comes to this issue. And again, we've talked about the things going on nationally with, you know, college students having scholarships revoked, et cetera, things like that. And I also just find it interesting I'm a proud American, but we've been a country for 260 years, and we want to keep opining on an issue that predates the Bible. And so one of the things with the whole you know, matter of disruption, you know, using uh, Representative Epps as an example, that's totally on brand. You know, she is an abolitionist, so she's a disruptor. Tim Hernandez is a disruptor. And so I do agree that, and I've said this also in the elections administration context, that sometimes you have to watch your right and your left flanks. But when it comes to these governmental bodies, you also have to keep in mind some of the uh, changes that have come in the ability to even have public comment. Keep in mind now, Denver City Council meets at 3.30 in the afternoon with a five o'clock public comment period. And they also have an ability now for people to be able to chime in on anything that affects municipal code. Now you have public comment in committees when things affect code, which is something that they've always had at the state house. And so there are people finding different mechanisms and ways to be heard, and I think those voices should be heard. One thing that concerns me, though, is lawmakers have told me that they feel that they are in a, a situation where they feel threatened for demonstrating any kind of support for Israel. That is not, that's not okay. It's one thing to be a disruptor and get your message mm -hmm. you know, across, but it's another thing when your fellow lawmakers feel threatened by you. But, but, but one thing is context. That's been the case for a long time yeah. in, in the legislature. And, and, and often it's difficult to look at these things in a vacuum because sometimes it depends on who's in the majority and sometimes it depends 
on what's the issue, but it is not at all unusual for legislators on occasion to go off script and just start acting out over a particular issue and disrupting the operation of business and legislators being sanctioned in an unfair or disproportionate fashion. That's sort of the nature of the beast. So. Yeah, but they're taking off um, stars of David because they're concerned that they're going to be t targeted by their fellow lawmakers and that they don't feel safe that way. Well, I guess I would just say that that points to the, the dilemma of the Democratic Party yes. these days, where particularly the younger portion of the party does not feel the same allegiance to our, the U.S. policy with regard to Israel mm -hmm. that has been the case for multiple generations. There is a fissure in the Democratic Party and they need to figure it out and work it out. And legislators, if they feel like wearing a Star, star of David, then by God, show some spine and wear the Star of David. Mm -hmm. All right, let's keep with the legislature. Uh, bill proposals for the 2024 legislative session are set, and when tallied up, they're estimated to cost around $2 billion. But apparently lawmakers only have $23 million, is that right, uh, for new programs. Penfield, since you know the ins and outs of what goes on in that building, let me start with you. Well, I'd begin by saying, worry not. This happens every year. Um, uh, there are always bills filed that, if they were all passed, would require more money than is available to finance. That's why you have appropriation committees. That's why you have the JBC. Bills will get killed early on because they cost money. It's called a positive fiscal note. Bills will get held in the appropriation committees for months until the budget is passed. And then once the budget is passed, a whole slew of bills get killed because the answer is, we don't need money. We passed the budget, we can't fund things. And so then you have to get creative about different ways to fund your priorities. The reality is this. Um, the way the state budget work, once you deal with human services, corrections, and a few other things, 90% of your budget is gone uh, in school finance. 90% of your budget is gone. So you're really dealing with the margins. And the question is, what are your priorities at that point? And the governor's got a set of priorities, and different legislators have sense of priorities, and their different majorities and minority caucuses have priorities. It'll all sort out, and it all won't get passed. Okay. Chris, I think it's kind of fun to watch the process. We just saw it with the city of Denver, you know, back and forth between Mayor Mike Johnston and, and city council and, and what are the priorities. And I agree, the legislature takes about three months to get through the long bill and, and you know, sort through what's getting funded and what isn't. And the priorities of these projects are not the same as the governor's priorities. And he said education is really the top priority this year in funding, but ultimately it goes down to the legislature to come up with the long bill. Then once they pass it, the governor signs it. So the process I think is fascinating. And uh, I, I enjoy it every year because you see what is important to lawmakers when you see what they spend money on. Mm -hmm. And the gap is going to get closed because a lot of this big cost driver has to do with the issues around child welfare. And because of what's going on, us being post-pandemic, us being in a situation where we're coming out of uh, the pandemic where kids were sort of, you know, out of school and trying to online learn, and now we're dealing with some of the repercussions of that. So it's going to be interesting to watch how people sort of navigate being fiscally responsible 
without appearing to be anti-kid. And I also know that another one of the things that came out of that big number in that priority is the uh, creation of an Office of Behavioral Health. Now, we've seen how the state of Colorado and the rollout of new governmental programs has gone using the universal pre-K as an example. So I'll be sort of tuned in to see how that all turns out. Yeah, there are, the, there are five bills under that cluster which is title is at 1.8 billion for the next three years. Yeah, I agree with uh, a lot of what my friends here have said. I think they nailed it. Just a couple of observations. One is both the Speaker of the House, Julie McCluskey, and the President of the Senate, Steve Benberg, voted against referring that large package, the $1.8 billion package that you just referenced, to the full General Assembly this session. When you have both the Speaker and the Senate President lined up against you, that is not a strong starting point. There's also the issue of what I call the inflation penalty here. Uh, inflation, as we all know, has taken its toll over the last few years. Even though the Legislative Forecasting Office estimates that there will be $1.2 billion in new money this year versus last year for the legislature to appropriate, the overwhelming share of that is going to get caught taken by just inflationary increases in budget, by pay raises to keep up with inflation, et cetera. There's an inflationary penalty here, and you top it off with government has been very, uh, let's say there's been an abundance of COVID relief money that has been fattening public budgets over the last few years. That is now going away, so you're going to increasingly see this need to narrow it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is December the 1st, and the 31st deadline to house 1,000 people in Denver is quickly approaching. Mayor Johnson has told us that he expects a lot of housing to become available this month, and it is needed. Chris, the House 1000 Progress Dashboard shows that we're right around the 300 mark in terms of getting people off the street and into housing, temporary housing, um, since July when Mayor Johnston took office. Sure. Well, I mean, there's the process of you have to have housing to move people into if you want to put a thousand people in housing. Uh, my understanding is this city has, with the leases and the purchases of hotels and whatnot, um, about to bring 1,300 units online. That's quite a bit when you're housing a thousand. Um, I guess it's going to be a mass move-in weekend sometime, maybe like college, you know, when the kids move in and go back to school. But uh, I, I feel that they've identified what they want to do, whether they execute it smoothly or not, not sure. But you have to admire Mayor Mike Johnston for spending his political capital on this. This is his big project. Um, even if he falls short of the thousand, there will be progress that has been made. Of course, the city has sort of identified uh, success as being housing somebody for at least two weeks. I don't know if that's my definition of success, but at the same time, at least something is being done. If it's seen as a failure, then again, the mayor has spent a lot of political capital here. It'll be interesting to see how he approaches other projects going forward. He says it would be a failure only if his administration didn't try. So he's looking at this like we are trying really hard to make this work. 
Yeah, and like you said, Chris, it now you know, comes down to being a matter of inventory. And the other thing that keep in mind during this discussion is now also we have the migrant overlay, and then we've also talked on this program over the months about how to be careful about not conflating homelessness with, say, addiction issues. And then we see on the Denver Police Department Twitter account, outdoor deaths. And then you're saying, okay, well, they'll update us if they're homicides. None of them turned out to be homicides. So while they're still waiting on toxicology for the last four people that we lost on the streets, it appears that that is drug-related. And so um, keeping an eye on that part of it while also watching the lofty, ambitious vision of Mayor Johnston has been interesting. But the other thing that I've been watching is also the dynamic with city council. Because when Mayor Johnston first got elected, I was sort of wondering how he was going to get along with that sort of new, more left-leaning flank on city council. But some of those established incumbents like uh, Stacey Gilmore and Amanda Sawyer have been giving him the business a little bit, up to and including uh, council member uh, Gilmore resigning from the uh, committee charged with uh, dealing with this issue. So watching how that dynamic plays out is something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Mm -hmm. Eric. I'm a mixed views on this one, Kyle. On the one hand, I'm all in favor of ambitious goals. On the other hand, unrealistic goals are a little less praiseworthy. Uh, we will see here shortly where the pledge of 1,000 by the end of the year falls. I agree with Chris and others and, and with you, Kyle, that there is something notable about the effort, even if you fall marginally short and you're on path to do it. I think the voters of Denver will give you some latitude if it looks like a very good faith effort and progress has been made. I do think the pledge to end homelessness as we know it in four years that Mayor Johnston made during the course of his campaign, I think that falls into the category of unrealistic and, and not necessarily playing straight with voters. If he can prove me wrong, I will eat crow and all the more power to Mayor Johnston, but I don't think that is in the cards or realistic or necessarily doing a service to the issue. You know, this is a, a hard issue because I think it's the right thing to tackle. Uh, I think because of its impact on how downtown looks and feels, whether people patronize businesses in downtown, how people feel safe or unsafe in their neighborhoods, they're all impacted to some extent by the plight of the unhoused. Um, the issue, and I think Eric raises a good point, it's one thing to have goals. It's another thing to state a goal for a political objective when you know you're not going to get there. And I think some people are questioning that. And to Alton's point, I think that's what Councilwoman um, Gilmore was getting to. Yeah. She's like, this is a shell game, and you're playing games, and you're not giving us complete information, and we want to be helpful, and we have to approve these contracts, but you need to be straight with us. So I think there are people on city council who think there's a lot of gamesmen here. There's another issue that's going on that I think I hear because, you know, I live in Northeast Denver, I, I live in Park Hill. There are a number of people who feel that there's some disparity in that a number of the hotels mm -hmm. that are being acquired to place the unhoused are all in Northeast Denver, up and down Quebec and in other parts of Northeast Denver. And some people are saying, what are you doing to our neighborhood? We thought we were all going to share 
sort of the responsibility here for addressing this problem. It's not shared if you're only buying hotels in one part of the city and placing people there. And you have a real visible instance where one neighborhood objected to a proposed shelter and it was pulled off the table immediately. Yes. So that, that we need to watch how that plays out also. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next year's presidential election is garnering a lot of talk in Colorado. President Biden was here a few days ago, and then this coming Wednesday, the lawsuit regarding the March presidential primary gets more attention, Alton. Yeah, work? I'm going to go in sort of reverse order. When it comes to the uh, Trump lawsuit, I have to really admire the judge. I've always been of the school of thought that if you can make everyone mad on both sides, you're doing something right. And so I'm really interested, especially to hear from, you know, the lawyers on the panel about, you know, their thoughts on that. When it comes to Biden's visit to the third CD, again, remember, there was a time when Democrats didn't even have to work Pueblo. And I'm still hearing buzz that if the Frisch campaign would have been more boots on the ground in Pueblo, they might have been able to swing that last race against Boebert. Because people, you know, when you think about the third CD and you think about Representative Boebert, you think of sort of her part of the district, that rifle, Grand Junction is part of the district. They forget about the limousine liberal part of the district in Aspen. They forget about the artisan part of the district in Durango. That is a large district. And so I understand why the president came there to try and shore up and be able to actually say, hey, this is an example of a project that we brought that you're congressperson voted against and being able to illustrate it in that fashion. So I think that was well played. Mm -hmm. I'll go in the same order that Alton went first with regard to the lawsuit that the uh, Colorado Supreme Court now has under consideration. Uh, I admire Judge Wallace's ruling. I think it was a restrained ruling in terms of the ultimate uh, conclusion she came to, but man, did she lay out a factual case for the nature of Trump's participation in, let's call it what it is, an insurrection. And I think more than any other judge I've seen in these cases around the country, she went chapter and verse of Trump's involvement and his culpability in this. So good for her. With regard to Biden's visit, both to the Denver suburbs for a fundraiser and then to Pueblo, I'm not so sure that he didn't really do Lauren Boebert a favor. Um, Lauren Boebert's first agenda item, before she ever worries about Adam Frisch, is she has to get through what's becoming an increasingly potentially tough primary against a Grand Junction lawyer, Jeff Hurd. Uh, if, you're go if the president, who is not exactly Mr. Popularity among rural Republicans who make up the third district electorate, if he's going after the incumbent congressperson in that kind of personal way, which Biden did, that only can help Boebert in that primary among those anti-Biden kind of voters. I think uh, he may have put a couple points on her primary election total. Um, I'll flip the order again. I, Eric, respectfully, I disagree. I, I think that what Biden did, and I don't know if it was calculated, I think that Lauren Boebert's greatest exposure is not necessarily Adam Frisch. I think it's the Republican primary. And I think that what Biden did was highlighted the issue that uh, Colorado Republicans are going to face, which is, do we really need someone who is such a polarizing figure 
to be our candidate for this seat that we barely hung on to last election cycle. And some would argue her behavior has gotten worse since then. Can we afford to risk that? Is it time for a new face to run to sort of disrupt the Democratic candidate's footing? Because make no mistake about it, he's laying, Frisch's campaign is focused on, I want to take out Lauren Boebert. But if she's not in the equation, what do you do then? So I think that Biden's visit didn't help her quite as much. On the other issue, um, and we were talking about this before we started taping, um, I respect the judge's opinion. I respectfully think it's wrong. I think the amendment is clear when it says that the, the provision applies to um, anybody who holds an office under the United States or under any state. So it's not just limited to people in the House or the Senate. It also refers to electors for president and vice president. So I, I have a difficult time understanding how she makes that detailed ruling about how Trump engaged in and instigated an insurrection and then argue that the amendment doesn't apply to him. But there are two other states, at least, that have the same issue going on. And for different reasons, the judges all got to the point that we can't enforce this. Congress has to enforce the, the amendment. I don't know who does that, but uh, I think the reality is if I were former President Trump, I'd want my lawyers trying to go to the U.S. Supreme Court as quickly as possible, get all these cases somehow bundled together, because you can't afford to lose two or three state rulings like this. There's not enough time to get back on the ballot um, through the federal court system if that happens. Yeah, the, the timing of all this is just, yeah. yeah. All right, now it is time for our panel to go. Oh, wait, oh, I'm Chris. Chris, your thoughts? Well, uh, my thoughts have already been expressed here, so maybe we should move on. But um, no, I agree with Eric 100%. In fact, that's what I wanted to talk about. I don't think Biden's visit really does Adam Frisch a lot of good. It fires up Lauren Boebert's base. That said, I also agree with Eric is I don't think Lauren Boebert is a threat to Frisch anymore. I think it is Jeff Hurd. Jeff Hurd has shored up incredible support on the Western Slope. Uh, county commissioners throughout the entire district who were very loyal to Lauren Boebert have turned. I've seen his social media page. He also appeared at a, um, an event with the former chair of the GOP party in Mesa County there, Kevin McCarney, who absolutely adored Lauren Boebert, and he has flipped camps. I think the writing is on the wall. I see Jeff Hurd winning the primary and then going on to beat Frisch. I think Republicans will coalesce behind him. And the primary is in June, correct? End yes. of June. End of June. And again, I always like to point out, remember Boebert ran to the right of Scott Tipton. So again, the third CD is a very interesting political animal. Okay. Now it is time for our panel to point out what they see as highlights and disappointments of the week. Let's start with a low so we can end on a high note. Eric? Sounds good. I'm going to go back a couple of weeks to the special session. Uh, whatever you make of the outcome of that session, I thought that Senate President Fenberg pulled an unfair move and an unwise move in clearly ruling that there was a two-thirds majority to go to special orders when there was not, when the Democrats are one vote short of a two-thirds majority. Uh, he called for a voice vote. He gaveled it that it had passed. He knows better. He knows that there were not two-thirds there. 
The worm always turns in politics, and there'll be a point in time when those kinds of tactics are used against them. They should be called out for what they are on both sides of the aisle. You know, I disagree with the, the argument, and it's happened here in the state and it's happened nationally, that members of an elected body can expel a member who hasn't actually been convicted of a crime. I have an issue philosophically with the U.S. House of Representatives moving to expel George Santos. That being said, he's a disgrace. <laughs> he ought to just resign and step aside for the sake of his party, for the sake of the institution, for the sake of his constituents. He knows he broke the law, or at least colored in the gray areas where he never should have been, and he needs to step down. But I don't think it's right to vote to remove him if he's not convicted. Mine's Representative Epps, and you know we've already talked about that situation quite a bit, but it is my understanding that lawmakers are kind of letting her be isolated. They do not want to engage with her, and that then therefore you become ineffective in being a legislator. Um, again, as we already articulated, uh, the message gets lost in how you deliver it. And I would like to see the Democratic caucus perhaps uh, show some, you know, strength and, and have discipline involved here. And maybe they would at the start of the session or it would, it was the time now? Spoke to someone today and there's no talk of it. Oh. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Somebody's going to sit her down and pull her, pull her coattail. Thanks yeah. for that. Alton. And mine is going to be around the issue of auto theft. Even our mayor <laughs> has had his car stolen. And see, do you remember back in Aurora, maybe within the past year or so, they actually cracked down on the crime, mm -hmm. and then the forces of political correctness all got all in a huff about that. That is the taking of somebody's property. If someone would have stolen my $500 Celica when I was making five bucks an hour working nights at the airport, I would have been up the creek. So we have to stop being okay normalizing and making excuses for criminal behavior. All right, now listen on something positive, Eric. Right on, Alton. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, and well said, and welcome to the club, Mike Johnston. Um, let me shift gears. Colorado in the last couple of weeks has lost two notable Republicans of a previous generation and quite frankly a different breed of Republican but old-timers around the state will remember both Martha Ezzard, a state legislator who then ran for higher office, and Jim Johnson, a congressperson from the 4th Congressional District when that included Fort Collins, his hometown, both passed away in the, in the recent weeks and both will be missed. Okay. They will. Um, love him or hate him, Coach Sanders has changed the vibe among not just college athletics, but the vibe in this state. Um, Colorado's not been on TV so much, so frequently, and viewed by so many people in a long time. And as I said, love him or hate him, his appeal is obvious. And also on the cover of Sports Illustrated? Yes, that's yes. right. Sports Person of the Year. Yeah. <laughs> With Peggy, too. She's there, too. Yes, yeah, the yeah, in the photograph. Yep. Yeah, the super fan. Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree with you. Yes. Uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board. They came out on November 27th with an editorial about what happened with the special session here and pointed out that voters resoundingly said no to Proposition HH and then showed how this legislature and the governor pushed through many of the things that are in Proposition HH. Um, 
equalization of Tabor being one of them, um, pointing out that the highest uh, uh, taxpayers will get at least $1,000 less in their Tabor refunds. And then they finished with by saying, you know, voters can't do anything about this right now, but they sure can next year when they go to vote or vote out these lawmakers. So you're positive that we were called out? <laughs> I am positive that um, it rose to the level of a national attention. I don't think a lot of people understand the Taxpayer Bill of Rights uh, nationwide and what it means to Colorado. So it was a really well-written editorial that I think articulated what's going on here in well, Colorado. Because we all need lessons, too. It's a lot, right? So check it's out that article. And mine is a person. I know you're not supposed to get into a woman's age, but my mom at 85 embarked on a cross-country train trip oh, wow. to go hang out with her girlfriends and our cousins and just went solo. She said, you know what? I'm tired of three-hour tarmac delays. I'm getting on a train and going back east. Y'all have a happy Thanksgiving. And I just talked to her before coming into the studio, and she's back safely. Oh, my that gosh. Well, good for her. Did she have a good time? She had a great time. Oh, I do love the train. That is fun. <laughs> All right. Well, for my highlight of the week, here's a shout-out to the fun spirit of Boulder. And no, I'm not talking about Coach Prime this time. For the third year in a row, creative school kids in Boulder have helped name the city's snowplow fleet. All right, there are 17 plows in Boulder. I won't go through the entire list, but some of my favorites are a Nicola Snowkick, uh, King Scoopers, Plowy McPlowface, and Snow Much Fun. And yes, one of the plows is being named Dion Snowders. The full list is on bouldercolorado.gov. So that was cute. Uh, that is all for us this week. Thank you, panel, for coming. Thank you at home for watching, either on your device or TV, or listening to our podcast. We love that you join us. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.